Hello, VCOB. I am so grateful to be back with you today. This is the second week in a row. I think this is pretty nice. We're going steady. I think this is good. It is a privilege and an honor to teach again here with you. So would you pray with me as I dive into the message? Father, I pray that you'd teach us. I pray that you would guide us. Spirit, be with us, be present in us, and help us to not only understand your word, but understand your, the role of your word in the world. We are grateful for this morning. We are grateful for the gathered assembly, even if it is online. We love you. Amen. For my birthday, some friends of mine got me a print subscription to the Sunday edition to the New York Times. And because I am, I think, an older member of my generation, I find that I just love print journalism. I I love, for some reason, the feeling of the tangible paper of wrestling with it as you're trying to wrestle down the page to where you actually want to go. And one of the many articles that I read in last week's paper, the imagery of the front page caught my eye. And to be honest, I haven't been able to shake it from my imagination. It's the image from the front page of their Sunday review section. Now, you'll see it next to me, but I find it interesting for a number of reasons. When I look at this page, the first thing I notice is that about 70% of the page is empty space, which is pretty staggering for a print newspaper. That kind of real estate is not hard given up, or not easy given up. But it's just empty. It's, it's just blank. Like something should be there, but someone forgot to put something in. But then your eyes are naturally drawn to the bottom of the page where the words are chaotically stacked on top of one another. And the words just read, the world is broken. And even the way they're arranged, it, it made, it's made to look like rubble. As if they're remnants of a safe and stable structure that have since collapsed. And all that's left after the explosion is rubble. The world is broken. And I sense from this page, this front page of this editorial section, a deep sense of meaninglessness, of despair. Like the editor was agonizing over the state of the world as he or she arranged this for the front page. The world is broken. The world is broken, it says. And to be honest, that doesn't even quite get at necessarily what all of us are feeling. The present moment is, is more than just something that's been snapped in half and can be repaired with some Gorilla Glue and maybe some duct tape. It's not just that the world is broken, but I'd argue it's that the world feels like it's gone dark. It's complicated. And it has all kinds of things wrapped up in it. And yet the refrain, the world is broken, the world is dark, captures our imagination. I mean, surely you've felt it. Surely you've seen it around you. Surely like you feel it in your bones. It's all over the news. It's all over social media. It's all in our history. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our mental health. It's our fear. The world is broken. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you were to ask an Egyptian right before the plagues that same question, does the world feel dark or does the world feel broken? They'd probably disagree. They'd probably say something like, nope, the world feels great. My prospects seem fantastic because the world to them was not broken or dark. 
they'd say everything was pretty good, that everything's were going great, their finances were stable, their politics weren't too divisive, their worship was great, everything was fantastic, the gods were responding to them and providing good yield and good harvest through these slave workers. So yeah, everything to them was pretty okay. But then Moses shows up. He shows up on the scene and he begins to upend this whole system. The entire system that's built on the exploitation of Israel, their dehumanization as slaves, the way that Moses is challenging all of the work that they were doing and all of the work that the Egyptians had done to subjugate and be tricky with the Israelites, he begins to challenge. And he's not necessarily looking for reform. He's not looking for a little bit more rights for the slaves, but just to keep everything the same old, same old. He's looking for deliverance. And he keeps telling Pharaoh, let my people go, because fundamentally they aren't Pharaoh's people. They're Moses's people, and by proxy, they're God's people. See, God was the one who had chosen them. God is the one who won't abandon them. The God of Jacob and Abraham is the one who ultimately cares for them. God is the one who will deliver them because they're his people. Because even though they are slaves in Pharaoh's household, they have a higher calling, a higher dignity. They have a different future than what Pharaoh has for them. God has plans for them to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, to be a city on a hill, to show the world who God is and what he's like, that they would be a counter people in a dark world, that this people would be people of light, bearing the light of God as the people of God. So as you come to these plagues, um, where this showdown gets more and more intense, uh, last week we saw locusts, and we've gone through the list before, so I won't bore you there with the list of eight others, but we saw the locusts last week, and though the, the locusts took tomorrow's crops, the locusts came and they ate Israel's future, or they ate, sorry, Egypt's future with the future crops from the locusts, but now we come to the ninth plague. And we'll start off in Exodus 10, 22. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, turn them on, or just watch the screen next to me. Exodus 10, 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness. In all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, even if we don't necessarily see the significance on the surface, this is, you know, clearly far more significant than Pharaoh forgetting to pay the electric bill. It's a much more significant example, a much more significant critique of Egypt, of Pharaoh, of their systems. There's something theological happening here in this ninth plague. Now, as you may be aware, the Egyptian theological system consisted of many different gods and goddesses that ruled over different spheres of life. There was the god of of death, love, the elements, uh, regions, things like that. And as their mythology evolved, it became quite common for one god in particular to rise above all the rest. 
They had one God who was considered to be a supreme God or, or one God among everyone else that everyone else would pay deference to. And it was the God Ra or Re. This is the God of the sun. In Egyptian mythology, this God would ride across the sky on the sun and journey to the underworld to quell chaos Each morning he was reborn and he would repeat the cycle. But while he'd be battling against chaos, he was considered the creator God as well. He wasn't just the queller of chaos. He was also considered the creator, the one who brought life and warmth and growth like the sun. And most significantly, this God was buddy-buddy with Pharaoh. So much so that Pharaoh was often referred to as the son of Ra. Now, let's jump back into the text, Exodus chapter 10. Notice how explicit Moses is about the word darkness. He says it three times, and each time the the word is used, it gets deeper in meaning. So the first time he says that it's just darkness over the land of Egypt. And then we zoom in to see darkness to be felt, or as another translation says it, darkness so dark you can touch it. And the the image here is not so much necessarily you can just touch the darkness, but that the darkness will grab you. And finally, the last time we see the word darkness in this verse, it says pitch darkness or literally dark darkness. So for the Egyptians, again, this is not just a light bulb problem. There are much more, there's much more happening here beneath the surface. When God brings the darkness to descend onto Egypt, they have a whole host of problems and the least of which is light. Now, they can't literally see, but their issues are multifaceted. Their first issue is they now have a theological problem. They now have a theological problem because all of a sudden, this God of Israel is more powerful than Ra. The only real thing that they could count on, the only thing that they could guarantee every single day is the sunrise. You might have a different God being capricious on you. You might have the Nile overflow. You might have drought, but the sun, you can always count on the sun. And so when God blots out the sun or when God brings darkness, however he does it, maybe Ra isn't that powerful after all. This is the final blow to the Egyptian theological system as each plague so far has shown that creation fights for Israel and against Egypt. Now the sun is even on God's side. So we've seen that they have a theological problem. Now they have a political problem as well. We talked about this last week a little bit because Pharaoh is closely allied with the sun god. And he is called, if you recall, the son of Ra. But why does that matter if Ra bows to Yahweh's command? Maybe Pharaoh isn't as powerful as we thought. So the next issue they have is they also have a psychological problem because this text emphasizes that the darkness is felt or that it'll grab you. And it's not just darkness that you can shake off or or run from, but it's a darkness that invades your very mind. This is a mental health issue for the Egyptian people. It's that darkness has seeped into every crevice and crease and corner of their psyche. So they have a theological issue. They have a political issue now. They have a psychological issue now. And lastly, they have a moral issue. 
Because on top of all of this, God making it dark in Egypt is a critique of their entire moral and social system. Because they weren't building a system to serve the gods, to serve a higher power. They built a system that oppressed Israel for themselves. And they now have stumbled into a new moral problem. What if this entire system we've set up is entirely wrong? So their entire theological, political, psychological, and moral system is absolutely upended in these plagues and comes to a fever pitch in this ninth plague. And in many ways, up until this point, the gods of Egypt could be thought of as battling against Yahweh. Maybe they were losing, maybe they were losing the battle to win the war. But in this darkness, in this dark darkness, in this darkness that you can feel, they lost. It's done. Yahweh has won. Now, can you feel what it may have been like as an Egyptian in this system? Can you feel what it may have been like to have your entire system upended? Can you feel what it could have been like to have everything you ever believed turned around by the God of these Israeli peasant people? Can you even imagine what that would have been like for them? When God brings the darkness, he's showing Egypt the true state of things. He's bringing upon them what's been going on beneath the surface right in front of their faces, but they've ignored for far too long. He shows them once and for all that they are not on the side of victory and their society cannot oppress these people any longer. And this darkness is just an external manifestation of what's been happening every single day to this Israeli people. It's dark because Egypt itself is dark. But there's light. There's light in the slave quarters of Israel. There's light somehow. The text doesn't say how there's light and darkness in these different places. But there is light in Israel because, and listen to me, this is the key, the people of God bear the light of God. The people of God bear the light of God. See, when you take this concept of light uh, and you put it with the people of God, you find that it actually reaches across this whole Bible. It reaches across the grand meta narrative. It starts in Genesis when God subdues the chaos of the darkness by bringing light. And then you have it up through Exodus where God blinds Egypt and lights up Israel in our plague. And then you have another iteration when he guides them through the desert with his fire and light. And then again, this is picked up by Jesus in the Gospels when he says, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. And then First John tells us that we are to walk in the light. And we see the culmination of this entire biblical theological theme of light in Revelation where God's own glory supplies the, all the light we need. And so throughout the scriptures, light, bearing light, being light, dwelling in the light, walking in the light, they all become metaphors and patterns for the people of God. And throughout the biblical witness, we see that this light comes first from God himself. And second, this light is invitational. This light is attractive. 
Now, look at the text to see just how invitational this light is. So, jump down to Exodus 11, and we're going to pick it up in 11.2. In the meantime, Pharaoh has been trying to negotiate once again with Moses, and Moses has once again refused because this is not actually what God wants. God doesn't want half of his people back. He doesn't want only some of his people back. He wants all of his people out of Egypt and delivered. And so, Moses threatens the final plague, but notice here what happens in verse 3, but we'll start in verse 2 for a little bit of context. God says, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. That'll become important in chapter 13 in a couple weeks. But verse 3 says, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. Moses was considered to be great, the text says. Great. Not just, um, that was a pretty good time, like that was great. But this was the best time kind of emphasis. The time that'll beat all other times. This is the time that I'll remember forever. This word great, when the Egyptians are looking upon Moses and they consider him to be great, it conveys respect. It conveys preeminence. This is where, I'd argue, you begin to see the Egyptians begin to turn from Pharaoh. Suddenly they see that Moses may have more power than Pharaoh as he is more connected to a more powerful deity than Pharaoh is connected to Ra. That he may serve the most powerful God, the God who clearly fights for his people, the God who is not whimsical, the God who loves his people and saves and even gives light in the darkness. And so I believe when you fast forward to the actual Exodus, when the people leave, I believe that you see Egyptians go with them. Now think about that. Even in the darkness, God is invitational. Because the people of God bear the light of God, and that is invitational. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to bear the light? What does it mean to bear the light in a place of darkness? What could it mean to bring light to a society that's overrun by nihilism and despair? How can we be stewards of the light in a divided culture, in in one that says that we need to ally ourselves to one party in order to hate the other? How can we bring light when the darkness is so thick that we can feel it? How can we bear the light of God when the darkness still sits inside of us? Like, how can we still bear the light of God when these things around us seem so scary, so confusing, and when we have a difficult time explaining what's going on in the world to our sons and daughters? How can we bear the light when we are just trying to make decisions tomorrow that's best for our family today? How can we take the next right step when we are bearing the light of God? Because friends, I feel the darkness of our time. I feel the injustice in our moment. I feel the hatred and division. I feel the polarization, like we're just being pulled in too many different directions. I feel the anger and frustration at the killing of George Floyd. 
I feel a sense of loss because life is precious. And this has happened way too many times. I feel the anger from good police who decried those eight minutes and 46 seconds when they heard, I can't breathe, I want my mother, over and over and over again. I feel the calls of peace from noble police chiefs and officers who want to serve and protect all people under the law. I feel a yearn for freedom. I feel the confusion of our moment and the anxious time that we are living in. I feel my white brothers and sisters straining to understand and empathize and yet also feel hopeless in the face of such profound evil. I feel the satanic roots of oppression and demonization of my black and brown brothers and sisters who have so far fought against racism in their own society. I feel the church's cry for the sanctity of life. I feel all creation groaning under the weight of sin and shame, waiting, waiting for our King Jesus to return and renew all creation. I feel the darkness. The darkness so thick that it could grab me and cage me and hold me in. And we could all give in. We could all resign ourselves to apathy, to directionless anger, to polarization, division, intentional blindness, or the tribalistic urge to choose sides when in fact it's both and. Friends, this darkness does not need to take us. This darkness does not need to hold on to us. This darkness does not need to define us because though we are in Egypt now, there is light among the people of God. Because there is light. There has always been light. Christ is the light of the world. In the darkness of Egypt, there is light in Israel. The church bears the light of Christ. Village church, you have been long bearing the light of Christ in your neighborhood, in your families, as you have fought sin in your personal lives and as you've sought to raise your families well. Long before I became a guest teacher here, I knew of the reputation of village church. And my friends, you have been long known to bring the light of Christ. There is light in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. But let's get practical. How can we personally bear the light and shine that into the darkness? The first thing, the first thing I'd encourage us is that we need to know the light. Author Justin Holcomb says it like this. He says, to your pain, the gospel says, you will be healed. To your shame, the gospel says, you can now come to God in confidence. To your rejection, the gospel says, you are accepted. To your lostness, the gospel says, you are found. I won't ever let you go. To your sin, the gospel says, you are forgiven and God declares you pure and righteous. To your death, the gospel says, you were once dead, but now you are alive. We bear the light of Christ first by knowing the light of Christ. We need to know this gospel of Jesus and know that we are invited into his embrace of love and affection. This needs to transform us. This needs to transform me on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, every single morning and night. The light of this good news drives out the darkness that's in our own heart. 
And it takes work. It takes repentance. But this is the good work of the Spirit of God, to know that you are healed, that you can come home to God in confidence, that you are accepted, that you are found, that you are forgiven, and that you are alive. This is the good news of Jesus. And any effort that we must make to bear the light beyond ourselves must first come from a place of personal transformation because that's how the Spirit brings renewal, one person at a time. And from there, the gospel, the good news, the light of Christ spreads from you into your families, into your cities, into your work, into your speech, into your ministries. It spreads and it pushes out the darkness. The second way we bear light is by looking for the places of light around us. There are incredible things happening all around us, pushing back the darkness of our time. There are some brave men and women who have been pushing back the darkness in their jobs and in their ministries. There are ministries happening here in this very church that have continued through the pandemic and it has brought so much hope to this area. I know that I have been personally loved and felt accepted here among this people by the light and love that you manifest here. And so I am looking at you as a place where there is light. There is light shining all around us and there are Christians doing the ordinary work of bringing light and we need to be on the lookout for it. And this brings me to my third way that we bear light. We bear light through love. We bear light through love. In his sermon titled, Loving Your Enemies, Dr. Martin Luther King sought to make a case for peaceful and nonviolent protests in an age where they believed that violence was the only way to make things happen, to get the attention of the government. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only love can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And later in the same sermon, he says that we love our enemies because love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. So how do we bear light? We love. We love with radical acceptance, with radical patience. We love with radical generosity. We love with radical service, with radical endurance. We love because our Jesus went to radical lengths to love us, to love me. Is the world broken? Are we in the darkness? I think so. I feel it. But I do know that the people of God bear the light of God. And his people bear the light through knowing, through looking, and through loving. The people of God bear the light of God because love transforms with redemptive power. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to worship. Father, I am grateful that you give us the light, 
that we're not even responsible for manifesting it in ourselves. But as we come connected to you, Jesus, you give us all the light that we need to shine in the darkness. So I pray for the darkness of our moment, for our officers, for our nation, for the men and women who are fighting and battling injustice in the courts and through all the means available to them. I, fight, I, I pray for our church leaders. I pray for our mothers and fathers. I pray for our school children who are trying to make sense of all this. Bring light into our moment. Bring light to your people. And let your people bring light to the world around. Let your people Know what it means to shine in the darkness. Do not give darkness a foothold, Lord. Enable your people. Give your people the passion to love and serve and be radically generous. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.